What's going on, guys? This is MDLP, and this is the Battle Axe Gym Podcast. Back to back special guests. Um, first, I'm going to always start off with giving thanks to those who have helped me along the way. First and foremost, my team and my guys that got me started doing this podcast in the first place Beard Strong Podcast. You can find them at, at Beard Strong Podcast, John and JT, always helping me out and pushing me forward. To my sponsor, my coach, and my good friend, Brian Carroll, as well as Team PRS, that's PowerRackStrength.com. This conversation and this whole entire thing could not be possible, actually, without Brian's help. And he linked me to our special guest tonight. Uh, always to my clan, my family, my gym, the Battle Axe Gym. At the Battle Axe Gym, you guys can always find us making waves and pushing forward. And finally, this is not a true sponsor, but I like to pretend. Aberlour 18 Scotch Whiskey fueling uh, my liver tonight. And without too much waiting, because I'm really excited to in- introduce this guest, Stuart McGill. Welcome to the Battle Axe Gym podcast. Well, thank you very much, Michael, JT, and John. I, uh, when uh, we first met, uh, let's see now, that was two months ago or three? No, t- yeah. uh, it was January, wasn't it, down yeah. in um, Jupiter, Florida. I uh, enjoyed uh, our short session together, and uh, it, was, uh, it was great. I, 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 I felt, I, I said a few words to Brian afterwards, and I said, A, he's going to be all right. B, he's tougher than hell. And, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and, oh. and you were um, very cerebral in your approach to uh, what, y- your, your comprehension of, of what we found and, and what our advice to you was. So there you go. Honestly, uh, I think we can just end on that note. If you guys want to just <laughs> just cut off the podcast, okay. uh, we're good. Uh, thank you very uh, honestly. Thank you very much, and and that's something I'm going to touch base on, especially towards the end. But um, I mean, me, I, I felt like I had earned the right to meet you, and that's why it was kind of awesome working with Brian and just meeting two two coaches and two mentors. I, like it was just felt really amazing uh, for the for guys listening. Um, just because Stu is extra humble and I'm extra not, Stuart McGill is one of the leading spine specialists in the world, and he's been training athletes and in this world for about 30 years, and now he's making big waves in the strength world, especially after working with Brian Carroll and writing a book together, The Gift of Injury, which we talk about a lot at the Battle Axe and just in general all over the strength world, as well as his personal book that's been really pushed into our world because it makes absolute sense for both the civilian and the athlete, um, Back Mechanics, which I've read literally three times. Um, um, and then I constantly tell people to guess one of my first two. So, Stuart, I, I really wanted to ask you a question. Um, was before Brian, uh, I'm sure you had worked with other strength athletes, but did you ever see yourself making such an incredible splash on the strength world like powerlifting and strongman? Where I think personally that you are right now is just everyone's tagging, talking about you. Did you ever foresee yourself at this level in this world? Mm, well, the answer is no. I never saw myself doing anything. Uh, <laughs> I, I had zero plan for my life. Uh, I wasn't even supposed to go to uh, university. And, and, and in fact, there were, I, I, well, yeah, I, I ended up at university quite by accident. And uh, anyway, long story short, I, I uh, went through and became a professor at uh, quite young. I think I was 27. 
and uh, or was I 28? It doesn't matter. But um, no, I I only worked in those early years uh, asking the simple question, how does this spine work? And uh, then we morphed a little bit and we said, well, how does it become injured and what are some of the best ways to rehabilitate it? And then we thought, let's um, uh, test drive a few sports cars. And what I mean by that is Honda Motor Corporation builds F1 race cars because what they learn at that level of competition, they can then bring down to the humble Honda Civic. So the gear change technology and the transmission of your Civic really came from uh, what they learned on the F1 racetrack. So when I can work with the strongest back in the world or the fastest or or uh, the, the, the toughest in, in uh, a fighting cage um, and probe it and understand uh, all of these variables, it then allows me to interpret what I see in uh, the average person. So it's been a beautiful synergy back and forth, but it was never planned. And uh, I never thought in a million years I would be doing what I'm doing. Man, that's that's definitely a I think that could be a podcast on itself, how uh, Dr. Stuart McGill accidentally became a professor and then became <laughs> super good at spines. Um, so one of the things that I would I really enjoyed about the book, I forgot exactly exactly what chapter, and and it was something that was it completely stood out. So when you're reading back mechanics, and it's especially evident in Gift of Injury, and again, to the listeners – I'm bringing these books up not because I'm trying to sell you something. It's because I fucking believe in it. And I never, ever, ever promote or repeat anything I don't believe in. So if you're constantly hearing me mention it, it's because I think you should read it. It's not like it's not really like, oh, buy this, this Coca-Cola product and I get some some money in the back. It's because I think it's absolutely something I believe in and it's absolutely something you should read, whether you're a coach or an athlete. So just explaining that because that's kind of how I am. I like people to know that I believe in this. Um, and one of the things in the chapter you talked about was the psychology of a type A and a type B personality. And that stood out so much because I have read and been with PTs and every type of therapist and no one has ever tried to identify my personality type, which honestly is what got me fucking hurt in the first place because I am an extreme type A. And you mentioned something about a type C. Um, and that's somebody who ends up being like a type A and type B. In your experience, um, and, I, and I'll, I'll ask this again because we had talked about these these particular questions. What's the most common mistake in mentality that you see in people when they start this long process of back rehab? Well, uh, there are several, but uh, let's just pick on one. And I would say uh, programming and then progression within the program. So to create a scientific foundation or logic, uh, giving a person a thorough assessment will show the mechanism of their pain and of their performance. Uh, once that's understood and precisely identified, um, you have to get rid of the cause. No one will get better until they have a roadmap of precisely what they should stop doing to stop the cause and then what they should do to build the foundation for pain-free 
uh, activity, whether they're a want to compete in strongman or or be a tennis player. Um, but uh, here here's the thing: when people get rid of their back pain, all that that shows is that the pain has desensitized in their tissues. Now, whatever the mechanism is, they've desensitized it, but it doesn't mean the tissues have healed. They're two different things. Mm -hmm. So the tissues, tissues have to heal and adapt. And, uh, many people fail because they're feeling good and they get right back into the gym again and start loading. So I can give a, a really good example with, uh, Brian, um, Brian, as you know, was uh, a fabulous, uh, highly decorated power lifter. He'd, he'd squatted over a thousand pounds many times, um, but he'd split his sacrum, fractured it front to back. It was a horrific fracture. People don't realize just the extent of uh, how fractured he was. His L5, his bottom vertebra, was crushed. The the two discs above and below were were uh, very, very damaged. But anyway, the point is we assessed all this. We knew exactly what we were dealing with. And I was able to say to Brian, um, A, uh, th these are pretty heavy fractures. If you're going to be successful, um, you've got to deal with them. And the only way I knew about uh, dealing with those was to do what we call bone callusing. So when you break a long bone, say you're uh, a bone in your forearm, uh, nature will form a callus over the break and that becomes stronger than the non-broken side. Um, so uh, the mechanism of bone fracture healing is, is through a phenomenon called piezoelectricity. So if you take a crystal, um, I don't know if you have these down in Florida, but we have them up here in Canada, which are just quartz rocks. And if you're a kid at night sitting around the campfire, you take two quartz rocks and you rub them together and they light up with lightning flashing through the rock because the quartz crystal is a piezoelectric material. When you... Uh, stress it, it builds an electric charge. Well, your bone is exactly the same. So when you stress a bone, it creates a charge. That charge sucks in free ions of magnesium and calcium and, and the materials that build bone. So that the electric charges suck the, the new material on. But here's the thing. Bodybuilders typically train three days a week, and they train to create the adaptation of muscle on the days off. But powerlifters and strength athletes, they cause microfracturing of, of the vertebra at a very, very micro level. But if they then train like a bodybuilder and do that three times a week, the cracks just keep on growing. Whereas when you look at the grand old men and women of powerlifting, uh, they will perform a very heavy training session, say they'll do heavy, heavy squats, and then they take five days off. And that is what's required to cause the bone adaptation. So there's uh, an example. Brian was uh, highly professional and very humble. He, he asked me my advice on what to do. And I said, well, I, I've only done this a few times, uh, this bone callusing. But let, let's, no promises, but we'll try it with you. And thank goodness it worked. He he was able to remodel the bone and, and heal them. But he committed a year to that. And then he was so professional, he knew in his heart that he could get his strength back 
and that was year two. So there's an example of programming and progression, uh, probably at the extreme, but um, people are, they get feeling good and then they get right back uh, training again, not realizing that uh, the tissues aren't ready and then they have another uh, episode. So it's just a cycle of pain recovery, pain recovery. Sound familiar? The uh, story of my life. <laughs> uh, absolutely, story of my life. That's, that, that's, the, that's the magnificent element of psychology now. If you're not of the warrior spirit, you would never do this to your body in the first place. And that's what creates great strength. But it also is your nemesis in rehab. So part of my job is to recognize these and hold back the warrior spirit as the warrior tissues readapt underneath. Ah, man, that's, I can't tell you, it's exactly, I, I knew we had the same mentality when I met you too, that a kinship to the, to the way and to, um, actually you'd really like a new tattoo I got, I got to send it to you, but it, uh, it says never stray from the way. Uh, it's the uh, uh, Miyamoto Musashi rule. And it's kind of the same concept that you're saying here is, and it, it, it's exactly what you said. The warrior is sometimes just always doing is not necessarily the warrior spirit. Actually stopping and pushing away for something to wait for your time is more of that spirit than anything I've ever felt. And obviously you saw it in Brian and a lot of people you've you've come across. Um, and, and, and this leads me to one of the questions that I wanted really to ask you. After, after dealing with so many athletes and obviously warriors and mentalities over the year, what would you say is some of the top mental traits or, or descriptions of people or kind of like psychological approaches that would lead to success um, in rehab and in sport after coming back from such a severe injury? What are, so is the question, what are the top mental traits then? Correct. Wow, what a what a fabulous question! Um, well, uh, boy, well I'll start this way. Um, great athletes uh, have a gift, uh, both physically, but almost always mentally. Um, it might surprise people unless they know a a top uh, like an MMA fighter. You know the UFC is becoming so popular now. And uh, having worked with uh, a number of those athletes, I'm always astounded at their intelligence. Um, so, so they have an intelligence. Uh, and, and well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some examples of that, I guess. First of all, there's this competitive, competitiveness and this will to win. But quite often, it's a will to test themselves. And, and that might surprise a lot of people. So um, I, I, I obviously can't mention names now, but you'll know all of these fighters. One I'm thinking in particular, he so thanks his opponents and he thanks them even more when they take him close to death. And oh, yeah. so the only time he truly feels alive is when he's fighting for it, when he's fighting for his life. Damn. And, uh, so that is a warrior spirit that, um, drives him. There are others who obviously, uh, have other reasons to compete with themselves and, and some, you know, as I get to know them a little bit more, 
um, a number of them had really rotten fathers. And I've come to understand that they're really fighting their own father in that um, in in that cage. And uh, I, I don't know if I would put myself into that category, uh, may, maybe partially. So whatever is the fire that drives people, um, there is just that will not to let an opponent beat them. You know, it, it could be a tennis player. It could be an Olympic rower who, who would say, no one is going to row through me. It's just not possible. I will not allow it to uh, happen. And then, you know, uh, getting back to, say, some strength athletes, and I'll, I'll mention uh, the name Bill Kazmaier simply because uh, Bill was gracious enough to write the forward to the Gift of Injury book. And if people don't know who he is, he won the world's strongest man for the first three years. The man. Yeah. And, and one of Bill's mottos is, I can, I will. And, and that's what he teaches in, uh, when, when he puts on a strength show and a little bit of a, a nice lecture. And, and you see that warrior mentality. Uh, it's just simply, I can and I will. Vasily Alexiev, the great Russian super heavyweight lifter, had exactly the same. He didn't want to know what the load on the bar was. He couldn't stand listening to the weights being loaded onto the bar because, you know, every cookie that gets uh, loaded has a different tone when they clang together so when you've been hanging around olympic weights for as long as he did he knew exactly what the the weight on the bar was but he, he couldn't even stand the sound of it being loaded all he knew was mind over matter that bar was going to be lifted and i don't ever recall him failing a lift um certainly uh, yeah i i mean i I, I just don't recall it. So anyway, they, they have this this indomitable um, spirit. So I, it, the top mental trait, that would have to be it. Man, that's uh, – <laughs> I don't know if you heard me almost throwing my mic across the room because what I have spray painted on my wall in the gym is the will to win. And I think I – I know – I think I say it almost every podcast, so – that was that's pretty that's really awesome and I'm kind of cheesing about it because I'm just honored to hear it from somebody who has seen so many perspectives and your enemy or your opponent could be anything even if it's just the barbell or the person you're trying to beat um, and I'm gonna keep this trait going but I really want to backtrack just a second um, when I was talking about PTs and and kind of go into into the professionalism and your perspective on actually rehabbing the spine. Um, and here's something that I had to kind of deal with because when I got hurt, obviously the first people I went to was PTs and everybody uh, that I was just asking therapists and so and even I even got wanted to go to chiropractors. I was just so desperate. In your experience, when it comes to back rehab, what are some of the most common mistakes or suggestions you'll hear PTs make? And I know you're not – I'm not asking you to say this because I know you're not dogging anybody, um, but I know that it's mentioned uh, in the book as well. But I want the listeners to hear maybe some of the most common mistakes you'll hear PT suggest to athletes and even civilians alike when they come in with like severe back pain. Well – uh, there are some physical therapists I don't think are qualified to deal with athletes. They don't know what an athlete is. They don't know what it takes to build a body to be resilient for load and speed and, and impact. Um, they don't learn this in school. 
uh, as a rule. There are some therapists who only know how to mobilize and stretch. They have no concept of how to tune stiffness for storage of recovery, uh, storage and recovery of elastic energy, for example. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think of some of the athletes who have tight hamstrings and you must have tight hamstrings. And I'm thinking of power lifters. I'm, you know, a, a tight hamstring is a strong hamstring when you're pulling a bar from the ground. I'm thinking of jumpers, uh, dunkers in the NBA. You have to have a tuned spring for a hamstring. You, you, you must not stretch it away. And yet, uh, those athletes have been told by physical therapists, um, oh, you, your back pain is because you've got tight hamstrings. You should be stretching it. And when I measured them, universally, they didn't have tight hamstrings that were causing their back pain. They had back pain, uh, usually from disc bulges that were uh, impinging the sciatic nerve roots, which travel through the hamstrings and gave them the impression of a tight muscle when in fact it was a tight nerve. So they were doing things like pulling their knees to their chest and stretching their hamstrings, not only ruining their athleticism, but making sure they stayed chronic with their, their back pain. It all came from physical therapists. So not all physical therapists by any stretch, but um, certainly uh, th th there are many that don't understand how to tune a body to pull uh, performance from it. So that would probably be the, the, the number one mistake, I think, from PTs. Yeah, and, and to piggyback on what you're saying, that's, that's what I thought I had an issue with for quite a long time was a hamstring issue. I would travel to train four hours in Orlando. And after doing strongman for four hours, I would drive back. And I'm like, man, my hamstrings are – it was just one hamstring. Oh, my hamstring's so tight. And when I would go to PTs, there was just – I explained the pain. It, was, it wasn't it was a normal pain. It was a weird hamstring pain. And they're like, yeah, and they would just focus on the hamstring. Well, you know, fast forward two, three years, we identified it as, you know, two major herniations and a bunch of bulges, which is typical strongman back. But if I had known three or four years to – Man, if I would have read your book three or four years, it would have been a lot different. Um, but such is life. We wouldn't be having this podcast if I wasn't fucked up last year. So that's pretty cool. Um, so, in, in, in but, Michael, can, can I just add another thought that came to mind while absolutely. you were that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if, if you're going to work with an athlete, you're not an expert if you don't know the sport. And if you're a therapist, and you aren't really conversant with the demands of that particular sport, you don't deserve to work with that athlete. It's like getting a bicycle mechanic to work on an F1 race car. It's not going to work. So you have to know the demands of the sport in terms of physicality. How much explosive power do they need? Do they need grip strength? What should the tuning of the hamstrings be? Um, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, know the sport, and what we would do is we would write down those variables on the first column of a page. Then we would go and assess the athlete. Do they have the capabilities to meet those specific demands? And then we just check them off. So if you're uh, pulling a heavy bar from the floor, you need good grip strength. You need um, powerful hips, tight hamstrings, 
probably fairly stiff feet to grip the ground and transmit force through to the floor. Um, you don't need excessive hip mobility. You need just enough to grab the bar at legal height. Um, we're looking for uh, stiffening and, and centration through the s shoulder girdle and the motor patterns needed to build a guy wire system for the spine. Anyway, we would write all those things down. Now, say the athlete had all of those things except they were losing the, uh, uh, say, the grip on the bar, and they were having to go way too early to an over-under grip at, at much lower loads. Well, the number one thing that therapist could have done for their back is to address that variable, the weak link. Once they got a better grip strength, they could do a double over-grip. Uh, lock down the spine a little bit more, camming with latissimus dorsi and all the rest of it. Um, then you would say, well, what, what's the best tool you have in your clinical toolbox to uh, enhance that variable in that particular athlete? So uh, the, the, there it just goes again. That That's the, um, the, the methodology to uh, converge on what is demanded what the athlete has, and then how to train the deficits. But you also have to know the components of each of those three. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's similar to when I met you and we were talking a lot about being prescribed walking. I remember at one point you had brought up um, the understanding of the sport and the, not only the physicality but the psychology of it. If if you're going to prescribe walking to a strong man. You're not going to expect them to build up to an hour walk. It's just not going to be fundamentally sound um, to prescribe a strongman. Uh, just in general, even the fat guys, um, even people who win Miami's Baddest Man, uh, whoever <laughs> threw <laughs> You uh, son of a bitch. Yeah, you're welcome. But um, if, if you're going to prescribe them an hour, it just doesn't make sense. But you, like you said, it's a 10-minute aggressive walk or a 15-minute aggressive walk with good speed and, and you know walking like you own the world, like you said, um, makes such a big difference. And uh, now that the 10-minute walk is getting so – it's funny how popular it's getting in the sense of cardiovascular ability. But we know that the, the how important it is for the spine. I've always been curious how you found this out. Uh, that walking created such an incredible um, rehabilitation for the spine. If you can kind of explain to us how important walking is and how you came across this uh, this finding. Yeah, great. Well, uh, first of all, uh, people build up cumulative stress that drives their pain throughout the day. Most of the time, that's from sitting. So people sitting at the computer, sitting in their cars, uh, etc. Sitting is a stress for the disc. Well, if they have a virgin disc and they don't lift weights and, and they, they uh, have a very, very modest life, this isn't an issue. But what we're talking about is people who sit at a computer for many hours and then they go and train. Mm. Um they're, they're, they are stressing their discs both ways. So uh, you, we all know the couch potato who can sit all day without any uh, back discomfort. Look who gets the back discomfort. It's the people who go and train for an hour and then uh, have, a, have an eight-hour sitting at the computer job. 
Well, what happens? Uh, the discs accumulate stress during sitting. One of the fastest ways to relieve that is to uh, walk. And then when we do uh, corrected walking, um, well, I'm, I'm just going to back up that story a tiny bit. Uh, go down to the neurology ward at the children's hospital, and you might find a child with a paralyzed quadratus lumborum. Now, the quadratus lumborum runs up each side of the lumbar spine. So when you stand on your left leg and swing your right leg when you're walking, you need to hold the pelvic platform up and level so the right hip doesn't fall down, stressing your back. The muscles that do that are the hip muscles on the stance leg side and the quadratus lumborum primarily on the leg on the right-hand side. Um, go watch a kid who's lost one quadratus lumborum. They can't walk. So it shows how fundamentally important the quadratus lumborum and a walking and a carry is the very best way to challenge it. Now, how, how did we discover that? When we were measuring, we were the, the, the first, I think, ever to measure strongmen competitors uh, and measuring hip load, spine load, muscle activation, and that kind of thing. I remember one of the great Americans who we measured, um, they uh, had 500 newton meters of strength at their hip that could support their pelvic platform on one stance leg. But when I measured uh, world-class uh, yoke carry, so I forget the pounds he was carrying on the yoke, but it was pretty impressive. Um, th that required 750 newton meters of strength, but he still carried the yoke. Point was, he didn't have the strength in his hips to carry it. Where did the missing strength come from? It came from his core, quadratus lumborum and the obliques on the swing leg side. So yet again, it was proof that the core makes you stronger and it radiates out into the rest of your body. The uh, walking and the stimulus that you get for 10 minutes three times a day, A, unloads the stress cycle on the discs, and B, it reminds your neurology to keep activating the core and most importantly, muscles like quadratus lumborum, etc. So if you're a lifter and uh, you lift, uh, maybe you do power cleans, deadlifts, squats, bench press, etc., you're always on two legs. And the QL and that type of frontal plane core strength and stability only comes when you uh, carry heavy things uh, one leg to the other. So that was a, a real uh, breakthrough in my thinking and understanding when we did that uh, in investigation quite a number of years ago. So th there's part of the story of, of how we came uh, to realize how important uh, interval walking is uh, for everybody, but particularly for the strength athlete. And then we just uh, added load in uh, the suitcase carry and then the farmer's walk and examined it to, to understand programming and, and that kind of thing. But uh, anyway, that, that gives your listeners a little bit of a start on it. Uh, I just want you to know that I pretty much like understood everything. Uh, I don't know if my co-host did, so I'm kind of like a doctor too now, so no <laughs> big deal. I don't know if you know, listen to my other podcast, but every time there's a doctor, I'm like, what's going on, fellow doctor? Uh, but honestly, uh, that's that's something I wanted to ask you about as well when it refers to the carries. And for the listeners, 
our 80,000 listeners, just kidding, uh, my mom mostly, uh, <laughs> that are listening. <laughs> when, when it came to carry, and I remember doing the suitcase carry with you, and I remember my left hand being relatively relaxed. And it was something that had slipped my mind from that particular day. And there's a difference between being a straw man, like primarily what we do is carry objects. But typically it's either you're locked into a yoke or you have two farmers or you're you're carrying a keg. And so both cams are locked in. Can you kind of tell me what the importance is? Because the first thing you told me was to squeeze the the unused hand basically if i have a suitcase carry and i'm carrying let's say a 50 pound kettlebell in my right hand um to to explain a little bit how important it is to to tighten that left hand and what the difference is between a a, i guess in a sense you would say a therapeutic carry or uh, a carry for spine rehab in a comparison to something that you normally see on instagram or social media where people are just carrying something mindlessly oh you've given me so much to uh, comment on there. Yes. First of all, if, if, your mother, if your mother is listening, <laughs> Michael's mother, uh, I, I wish I could shake your hand in person because you did a good job. Oh, man. I'm and, cheesing right now. Yeah. I'll tell her in Spanish. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, I, I'm trying to learn Spanish. I should probably try and learn to uh, do that myself. But uh, anyway, so. Uh, why would you squeeze the kettlebell handle or horn harder than you needed to if you were a strength athlete? Um, You may have heard of the principle called irradiation, but it's so much more than that. So if you were just to stand tall and relaxed and have someone put their hand on your cap of your shoulder, on your deltoid, And then just put a a light kettlebell or even a light object in your hand and then slowly start to squeeze that object in your hand. And then I would coach you to keep squeezing harder and harder until the point I said, now squeeze. And if you don't squeeze your hardest, you will die. So I just put a heavy consequence now on you squeezing that. The person holding onto your deltoid would feel a massive contraction. That contraction will then light up your latissimus dorsi and pec major and flow through your body and make you stronger. When you are loading your spine, it's a flexible rod. If I took the spine out of a cadaver say we got one from a motor vehicle accident or something like that. It sounds a bit gruesome, but that's what you do to perform these experiments. Um, What you would find is when you take the spine out of a person and put compressive load on it, it just flops over. It will buckle very quickly. A spine, being a flexible rod, has to be made into a rigid rod to successfully carry load. One of the first experiments that we did, it was from, uh, we go back to 1985 and 1986. I was working with some very good Canadian powerlifters. And one of them had a back injury while we were filming their spine with a video fluoroscope. So that's a real-time moving x-ray machine. I was trying to watch their discs deform and and whatnot under such massive loads. They were lifting around 600 pounds, I recall. This one fella had a back injury and his spine buckled. It it just at one joint, it kinked and, and collapsed a little bit. Very, very at at a micro level, but that was the mechanism of injury. In other words, he failed to get stiff. He failed to stiffen that flexible rod. So now we can go back to the hand grip. 
the harder you grip, it radiates up your arm and down into your core and vice versa. Your core stiffens and then it radiates peripherally, making you stronger. So it gets back to strength and creating load resilience through your body. So that's uh, a little bit of a neurological start to the explanation of why you would uh, uh, grip hard. Um, but um, if, if we were, uh, say, picking up an Olympic bar with a double overhand grip, we would try and bend the bar and externally rotate through the shoulders to really fire up psoas, uh, sorry, latissimus and whatnot. And then, you know, the anatomy geeks are going to say, oh, McGill, the uh, latissimus dorsius and an external rotator of the shoulder. And I, I would have to say, sir or madam, you've never worked with an athlete, so go sit. <laughs> but when, when you, when you uh, cam down and, and perform that posting action with latissimus dorsi, it stimulates the pecs. Uh, it, it, it just stiffens the whole shoulder complex and puts an anti-buckling stiffness through that spine, and then it unleashes the hips. So you can't push a rope, but you can sure push stone. The hips have to push stone. If your brain detects instability through your spine or insufficient stiffness, it shuts down the drive. You've got to be stiff to get full power to the hips. And I can give a little bit of a teleological argument to that. The World's Strongest Man competition, uh, 2018, came out on YouTube. So you can type that and, and, and watch that, uh, the, the, the whole event. Pay particular attention to the um, strength test where the athletes had to squat, I think it was 750 pounds for reps. Most of them were failing somewhere around 12 to 16 reps. Watch the rep before they failed and every single time you will see one of the hips shift off to the side a little bit in other words the core got a little bit loose the next rep they failed every single time what happens is when you start to lose that core stiffness the brain shuts it down and it won't create the dense neural drive and send it to the hips because it detects you're now pushing rope instead of a pushing a stone. So that's, <laughs> that's how. Important. Sorry, I couldn't help yeah. myself. <laughs> so that, that's that's what is uh, is is happening, and uh, you know, once again, I have to listen to the the kids who, you know, it turns out they're the world's expert on Facebook, and they live in their mother's basement. And they've never created one <laughs> record in their life. But, uh, yeah, anyway. I'm pretty good at that. To 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 touch base, guys, never push rope and get out of your your uh, your mother's basement is what we got out of that. But um, that's it's uh, I'm cheesing. I love it. I I really do. Like I'm actually generally excited about having this conversation with you, Stu. Especially that you're bringing up strongman because I mean that's what I do. That's what I love. And the two boys listening with me right now as well. Um, one thing that I definitely want to, um, I guess, touch base. Obviously, we're we're talking here about the lifter's wedge and and really expressing that kind of neurologically neurological firing. And it's something I read in, in um, Ultimate Back Fitness too that uh, neurological messaging or strength is a message. It's a it's almost like a thought. 
and there's a picture I posted of you when you're you and me are kind of facing off. I did it on my Instagram because I thought that was one of the most valuable lessons that I had read and that I had been expressing as a coach and an athlete for so many years, but it wasn't necessarily backed by science. I guess you can kind of like back it up by just, you know, warrior mentality and just, you know, trench warfare playing the sport, but that game face, that, that aggression that comes out and how important that is, if you can explain just a little bit, how important that is to expressing full power and full expression of strength and such an explosive movement, like let's say strongman. Well, there are so many experiential reports um, but also uh, real uh, n- neurology uh, about all this. So let me give you, tell you an impressive story. And the story, I hope you won't mind me telling this, um, but there's uh, a Polish weightlifter named Jerzy Grigoric. He, he now lives in California. He is a fabulous personality and uh, obviously uh, athlete, and and he's he's in his he's older than I am. He, he's in his late sixties now, and um, uh, he'll tell you he uh, you know already had a, a world record, and uh, he it was a, doing the clean and jerk on the platform. He'd done the clean, and he knew in his in his heart he just. He's going to set the next world record now in the next two or three seconds. And he allowed that little hint of satisfaction and what he called an internal smile. His body shut down and he lost the lift and he lost the record. So there is, uh, you will hear athletes tell you that when they break their concentration and they just get a little bit too satisfied. The brain is sending out a dense neural drive that comes from a thought that is governed by strength of mind. So the stronger your thought, the grimmer your face, the more dense the neural drive, the more dense the thought, the heavier the concentration of pulses uh, transmitting down the nerves that the muscle will eventually see. Um, If you want to break it, smile. So uh, I mean, the stories I could tell you going back years ago from arm wrestling and whatnot, that would be a common dirty trick I would use. I would try and <laughs> get the opponent to smile. And then when I saw that that loss of grimness in their face, I'd blast and I, I could quite often get a little bit of leeway on them. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, game face is huge. Uh, okay, so... Go on with the arm wrestling. Is this like a, a competitive thing, or were we just talking about like having a couple of whiskeys at a bar here? Because I hate to sidetrack, but I'm really no. Curious. I was pretty good at one time. I also no have way. a question about the arm wrestling. For you to win, did you always have to turn your hat backwards, or did you- <laughs> <laughs> over the top? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't think I even owned a hat back in those days. <laughs> but um, well, I mean, I, I could tell you. Look, I've retired now, so I could tell these stories. But uh, you know, if we go back thirty years ago, so I'm a young professor, and uh, you know, if there would be a couple of football players in the back of my lecture hall, you know, nattering away to a, a woman or something, and I'd tell them to cool it, they're distracting me. And then the next lecture, the back there doing <laughs> thing, I, I'd usually invite one of them to come down to the front for an arm wrestle, and that would be the rest of my lecture. I would then get into the science of leverage, uh, strength of thought, smiling, 
Um, I would try and paralyze their hand, uh, getting the nerve between the uh, two carpal bones uh, in their in the back of their hand. Um, I'd use my hips. I, I and and you'd be surprised, but quite often I would win. And a they were so embarrassed that for the rest of the term they'd shut up and listen. And B, <laughs> it allowed me to teach the class uh, a uh, uh, a lesson on pulling performance out of the body. But, you know, if I did that now, I'd, I'd pr- probably, the kids aren't as tough as they used to be. <laughs> I'd, 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 You're I'd not wrong. Them, and then I'd be uh, in, in big trouble. And, and of course, you, you can't teach that way anymore. It's, it's just not allowed. But um, anyway, that, 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 that there's a, a thought on that. But, um, yeah, I used to be not... Uh, too too bad in um, arm wrestling. Um, so no, I mean we're going back forty years, mind you. No, I mean, I mean that was just yesterday. I'm not even going to bring the past up here. I think that just sounds really kick-ass. So let's not even add up the years because then people are going to start deducing your age. And but I I I do, I do you know I have a, a little game with any guy who wants to come over and take out my daughter. We have an arm wrestle, and that uh, you know no one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Oh my God, dear well, I, I don't have to pull out and show them my guns just yet, uh, <laughs> or, or knives or anything nasty. All I do is say, uh, you know, or actually my daughter usually instigates it, and oh. uh, we all have a good laugh over it. I always, I always tell my nieces, I'm like, I will literally pick you up in school in the smallest tank top ever and act the biggest thug if you ever bring anything home ever. So I just suck at our well, wrestling, so I do have to pull out the guns. Yeah. Um, yeah. You'll 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 change. Some of them will be uh, pretty decent guys, but um, they're they're still as. Uh, uh, gosh, my daughter's never going to get another date again after this. <laughs> nope. Uh, you officially have bad guys in Miami that will fly up to Canada at this point. So done. Um, and you know what? To, to, I, I really. I think you met her, didn't you, Michael? Yeah, down yeah she, she was yeah. great. Yeah, she was great. So everybody she dates from now on, Stu, I hate. So I want you to just express that because we're family now. So we're done. Um, I don't know if you know Columbia's, but basically we're, we're like family now. So now <laughs> it's over. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what? I, I, this is something that I was I was talking about um, just a little bit when we had our conversation before the podcast. But one of my biggest things I really want to have this uh, conversation with you is because not only are – I'll speak for my gym – and my close friends and myself, not only being curious about your experience as uh, a spine specialist, a doctor, and just traveling the world in general, but your opinions about things and your your outlook on things after working with athletes and being an athlete yourself for you know, uh, it, you, like you said, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And here's it kind of leads to the question I wanted to ask you. And having that old school mentality and being an athlete yourself, is there anything you would like to see in today's lifters or generation or maybe something that you would um, give advice to our our current lifting situation, our current culture of lifting? Well, uh, one thing I'll start off by saying, I I was not a great athlete at all. So, uh, yeah, not not at all. Too humble. I, I, no, when I, 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 years, I'd be like, I was the best ever. No, no. One of the joys of what I do now 
is uh, if I'm working with an athlete, obviously I'm feeling their strength and their speed and their explosive power and, and getting a, and, and, and their technique with some of the MMA guys, it's just absolutely fabulous to have a little role, you know, on the jujitsu mat with them and just how awesome the, you know, the, the MMA athlete of today is light years ahead of where they were 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, they were killers. So it's it's just fabulous for me to feel uh, all of all of this uh, athleticism. And, and then, you know, you realize I never had a chance in, 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 in any way, shape or form when I was uh, younger with, uh, you know, you, you work with a great footballer or hockey player or, or uh, MMA athlete. They're just awesome. But anyway, ha- having said that, um, uh, here, w- w- when I walk across the university campus now, it's appalling. The general condition of those young people is pathetic. And I fear for them. Um, so that's, that, uh, maybe I'll just start the conversation that way, but I know what battle acts, Jim is all about. And I know what certain, uh, CrossFit gyms are about. I'm not comparing or putting you two in the same category, but what I love about that whole mentality is it is a place where the warrior spirit thrives people are helping one another to be tougher and more resilient in a benevolent way, if I can term it that. So, you know, when I, I, I hate the, the crazy CrossFit programming sometimes, but I love the community and the development of the warrior spirit that it brings. So that's a place where I can go and I'm not appalled at these pathetic young It's quite the opposite. I'm so impressed. I love working with them. I love the spirit. Um, uh, d- d- does that, I, I really don't have any broad specific advice other than that sort of selfish impression and view. Whenever I give advice, I mean, my whole world is the individual. So, I'm, as you know, I assess the individual and then give them my advice on what they should and shouldn't do. Uh, but I, I don't really have advice for bigger groups. Uh, I think you. Uh, I mean, I think you just gave my gym and myself one of the biggest compliments ever, and in rare fashion very rare fashion to my personality type I'm rather speechless about that so yes I think that the warrior spirit is something that is fleeting and fading and not completely gone there are still people promoting it and pushing it and that it's the building of a culture is the building of a uh, it's not just programming it's it goes much deeper into the psyche and the environment you make and how you walk which is one of my favorite things about the walking concept, proud and 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 your that vision and that mentality. Even in your rehab process, even mentioned in the book, it's like you have to have confidence. Talking to Brian when he had a seminar at the Battle Axe and talking about 1020 and saying that, yeah, like when you're coming back from injury, there has to be a little insanity in you to say, Hey, I'm gonna make it. Like I'm gonna push forward, I'm gonna, I'm gonna 
I'm going to beat this kind of thing. And, and that's, that's awesome. I just, before I rant too long, because that's just such an emotional thing for me to hear. And I'm i I'm obviously Hispanic. So everything's a hundred percent emotional. Like I mentioned on every <laughs> podcast, but, um, I, I wanted to, to push another question. And just because I feel like, I think you and me share, uh, a similar passion or a kinship in this warrior mentality and identity. Um, talking back to your past, maybe just how did you, I know you said you kind of fell into school by mistake and it just kind of started to happen, but there has to be a moment, I think, in all our lives where you wake up one day and you're like, fuck, like, this is what I was meant to do. This, this is the moment, whether you had experienced an athlete or you helped somebody come back or something in your personal life where you woke up one day and said, this is my passion, and then you push forward. Would you say there was a moment or a day or a situation that did that? Not really. No, I, I, I can't say that. I certainly can say there were very influential people in my life. When I was in high school, I certainly wasn't any uh, form of student to uh, speak of. But we had a new teacher that came in, and he wasn't uh, that old. He'd probably only been about 25 years old himself. And we would be an impressionable 15- and 16-year-old group of kids. But he was a former fullback from university football but he, he was a bodybuilder, and we were just impressed at this guy's physique to no end. Well, he uh, developed a weightlifting club, which we all, well, my group of, of buddies, we went there, and I forget what time we had to be at school. I mean, school started at 8.10 or something like that, and we were there at 6.30. We'd run a few hills, and then we'd uh, do a weightlifting club. And then after school you know we either had track and field or football and uh but he he had a huge impression on me and it was in fact him that uh, got me into football and that's the only reason i went to university i had zero interest in uh in uh, school uh, at that time um but when i got to university um, I, uh, got interested in road cycling, you, you know, uh, road biking. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, I, uh, while well, I started out in physical education simply because the, the football coach said, well, what do you want to study? And I said, I couldn't care less. And he said, okay, <laughs> you do that. And, uh, but I, I, I was one of the first ever to start taking physics and math courses only once again, because I had a fabulous professor and, and he was showing us that, that calculus wasn't magic. In fact, it was very mechanical. And, uh, I said, well, why couldn't they teach us this in high school? I mean, a derivative is only a slope of a curve, uh, on a graph and, a you know, the, the integrals, the area under the curve. Uh, okay. I finally get this. This isn't magic. Anyway, I ended up applying for a master's degree in physics, but also in biomechanics. Uh, and I chose the university of Ottawa for biomechanics because it was, uh, I could ride my bike in the French uh, Gatineau of Quebec. Uh, up in the, the the mountains there, and then I was playing hockey for the professor's uh, team at University of Ottawa when I was a master's student, and they uh, would play all the, the, these different universities. And being a professor's league, the host team would provide the beer in the dressing room for the for the um, uh, guest team, yeah. the visiting team. 
And uh, so we beat the hell out of each other and then all have a beer together in the same dressing room. And uh, I, I met uh, a professor named Bob Norman from University of Waterloo, who ended up being my uh, PhD mentor. I was actually going to start my, my PhD in systems design engineering. I, I signed up for that. And they said, well, come on over and see my lab. And so that just came through uh, hockey. And then uh, I ended up doing my PhD in spine uh, biomechanics. So there was never a conscious uh, direction you know, these days, different groups will say, oh, could you come and talk to our students about your career path and how, how you developed it? And I said, no, I'm the world's worst speaker in the world. I'd be a terrible <laughs> example. Um, I, I only did what – anyway, it was, it was so random. And then uh, – but I, I guess uh, what I'm talking about is nonsense. No one wants to hear it. But no, well, false. Well, this is kind of like what I really wanted to hear. I'll, I'll be the opposite and say that I'm well, actually having a great time. Okay. Well, what I, what I, would, I should probably get around to saying is it's all attitude. You know, if you go to work every day and it's, it's uh, just drudgery – then that's what it will be. But if you go in and say, you know, um, that athlete called me up. I think a lot of my colleagues would have turned him away, but I didn't. I said, no, come to the lab. Let's let's probe you. Let's 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 play. Uh, I'm not going to test a hypothesis. That's boring as hell, science. I've never tested a hypothesis in the laboratory in my life. All I did was make observations from. Uh, gyms and clinics and how come that athlete could do that? How come that person's in pain? And, and I'd measure them and probe them and try and understand it. And then I'd go to the lab and do some fundamental science to try and figure out the mechanism. And then I would come back to that athlete and say, you know what? I just learned this. Let's give this a try. And it was this wonderful synergy back and forth. So that only became uh, the process because of an attitude. So that, that, that that's that's all I can really say about this. It was an attitude that created an evolution of a synergy between science and uh, application and coaching and being doctoring and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, just to to take a, a, a observation about that, I feel like it really reflects in your writing. Uh, you know, coming from reading back mechanics and other, and a lot of your, and listen to your podcasts and a lot of your, your journal, your journals and talks is just this kind of troubleshooting. Um, I feel like, if you don't mind my saying, it's kind of like troubleshooting life. You know, you you test, you move, you adjust, you're patient, and it reminds me a lot about a question I read on the on the Q and A today, on um, on the Power Rec site which is something that you know we're required to do and looking at it and I enjoy it. And the gentleman was asking about, well, should I do an 864, 642 kind of ladder when it holds the bird dogs? And the answer by Brian and myself included was, well, there's a troubleshooting kind of patience adaptation process where there's not just this cookie cutter, I'm going to wake up and go to college and this is just the way it's going to be, but rather you're falling into something because you have the attitude that you're going to understand that rehab is a process, that this is a lifestyle. Um, that's kind of listening to you talk and maybe just having like a, a moment of epiphany, but it just seems to mesh very well with your writings and your, your, your approach to that. And that'll lead me to one of my questions that I really 
really wanted to ask from a personal perspective and maybe just something you've dealt with over the years. Um, but when it comes to listening to people in pain and listening to athletes overcoming these kind of moments, for example, five, four or five months in, you're still experiencing these pains or kind of nerve damage or, you know, you kind of have this psychological drop. Have you ever had a sit down or maybe some suggestions you can tell people both physically uh, and as well as psychologically where you're explaining that this is a process that's going to take more than three or four months, which is what you really see online. This is my personal opinion where people will bird dog for three months and then they go back and deadlift 405. Um, and just to kind of go back to the question because I get super chatty because I'm passionate about this, but if you were dealing with somebody who's five or six months into the process of rehabbing, is there, and they're, they're feeling bad or they kind of had a relapse, how normal is it to feel relapses or how common is it to, to see these things and what would you say to somebody for so they continue on the way and on the path? Uh, l let me tell you a little story to form a foundation and then I'll answer your question. When we were at the university, uh, we, well, I didn't, but uh, obviously different uh, professors in the department would run exercise trials to see if exercise augmented medicine. So we had one professor who is a cancer specialist, and she would take uh, clinical trial groups of women on chemotherapy for breast cancer. Now, I would go into those classes and I do a little bit of uh, old fundamental core work with them and whatnot. And the attitude of that class was fantastic. I am so convinced there is a personality profile consistent with breast cancer. They are tape type A positive women. They're go-getters. So when you tell women in that class, do 10 reps of this, they will give you 20. In other words, I had to pull them back and hold them back, slow them down. Now, the next class that came in after that were comorbid diabetics. And then we would do the same thing. It was a downer to go in there. It was a j just a dull atmosphere. And I would say, well, let's do 10 reps. And I could almost predict I was then going to hear a bargaining session from them why they only needed to do three. They were slothful. They didn't like to move. Was it really that much of, uh, did, it wasn't rocket science to know why they had comorbid diabetes. So there goes another example of you have to be able to read people. And uh, you, you, you learn this by doing these experiments uh, and, and just working with them and, and keeping your ears and eyes open. And, and you'll see these sorts of patterns. You're just recognizing patterns. So to, to answer your question now, um, I, I would, uh, you, you said to people, well, again, I, I don't deal with populations of people. It's one-on-one, -on -one, but I'm sussing out their personality type. Is this going to be someone I have to encourage? Do I have to hold them back? What are their learning cues? Can I just tell them and they'll, they'll cue into what it is I want them to do? Or do I have to touch them to cue a muscle? Or do I have to tell them to jump a little? Do you know what I mean? An external yeah. cue? And, and so again, I'm, I'm trying to assess all of that and then how I interact with them depends on my read of them. 
Does that make sense a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. It's what I'm understanding, and just to to piggyback on what you're saying is, again, it's it's all making it all. See, it's really awesome how it all ties in. If you're asking me personally, because just like spine rehab and science in general, it's very very specific. Um, if correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, spine rehab is extremely specific, and it's case to case scenarios. So for you to make a general answer. To say, hey, if you guys are all just really, you know, tough, you'll be fine. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily work for the person that's not tough. So you're gonna have to cue that person differently, uh, you know, cue them in differently, talk to them differently, and and also listen to them differently. Is yeah, that, the does that make guy, sense? You have to hold back. Yeah. So you 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 used the you said do a three a few uh, bird dogs for three months and they want to deadlift four oh five. You've got to hold that person back and. Uh, give them a reason why uh, they shouldn't load tissues that are now desensitized and they're not painful anymore, but they haven't adapted. So, um, again, you know, my colleagues might say, oh, they're not smart enough. We're not going to explain to them tissue adaptation. And I said, no, actually, it's you you that aren't smart enough. If if I have a car mechanic and I say, give me uh, 90 foot pounds of torque on that wrench, because 90 foot-pounds is what you use to tighten up the nuts on your car, then uh, they know a torque better than any orthopedic surgeon. So, again, you, you know, you talk their language, but don't tell me they're, they're not smart enough to get it. You bloody well do explain to them what the uh, mechanism is and why they need to hold off a little while and uh, allow that adaptation to take place. And then the protocol is you never step increase the load if you're coming off injury. You dip your toe in the water. So go uh, deadlift a broomstick and then see what your reaction of the body was the next day. If, it's a, if, it, was, if it was good or you even feel better, great. Now pick up a, 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 um, a, an Olympic bar off blocks, very light load. And see how your body is the next day. In other words, we're going to go at this incrementally and guarantee success rather than uh, the step input 405. You almost deserve to have another injury because you created it. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's exactly why I worked with Brian because I knew myself um, I know myself very well, and uh, the stubbornness that got me to be really, really strong is the same stubbornness that got me so hurt. And I remember telling you this story um, when we, we hung out in Jupiter about Brian, and we did it in the podcast with Brian, too, about having to earn those weights back and being told that, him identifying my personality type, saying, hey, you need to earn your way back into lifting was the... The, the, the defining moment in that conversation that I knew was going to push me into, if that makes sense, push me into holding back, which is it's the only way I can talk because it's the only way I know how to talk to myself with type A personality. So it makes it makes perfect sense that you're you're obviously adapting not only your protocol but the way you speak to the to the lifters. And then uh, I and I think that's that's. I mean, that goes to go your experience and also the psychology behind it. Because I'm a psych major and I'm a big nerd about psychology, obviously. So, um, And now you've been gifted with the ability to travel all over the world with this. And I just saw that you went in, uh, in, in Europe and you're going everywhere. 
And I first of all, congratulations. I think that's really fucking cool. Can I can I ask you if there's any particular moment in your world travels as a as a coach, a mentor, and a professor where something just stood out, maybe an area or a particular story? This is just out of plain curiosity. This is just something that I'm asking for myself because I've been lucky enough to travel coaching and there's some moments in time where they just stood out uh, so vividly and they just I felt super grateful for having the ability to go anywhere. Um, is there any moments that stand out for you like that? Yeah, I, I, n- not overly, um, because uh, every day I, I try and squeeze something special uh, out of it. And if it's a not a special day, I'm still going to squeeze the non-specialness, the quietness, what, whatever that day gives me. So nothing is going to stand out. But having said that, um, I, th- there's there's two countries on this planet that, of, of course, I, I, I'm a Canadian. I love Canada. But there, there are two countries that are very soulful for me. And uh, one is Greece and one is uh, Costa Rica. So uh, they both have this sort of slow life. It's a wise life. The, uh, there, there are fabulous clinicians that I can interact with in, in both of those countries. I love the food. I love the culture. Yeah, pura vida. Uh, That's what they say. In Costa Rica. Yeah, for sure. So in Greece, for example... Um, I was there uh, two, uh, eight weeks ago, I guess, and uh, just to, to go to the Parthenon and the, and the Garden of Socrates, the Socratic Garden and the, the, the Stone Theater, which was already 2,000 years old when Jesus was around. You know, it's 4,000 years old. And to walk up the stone steps and realize that Plato and Socrates and Aristotle had, had walked up these steps. Now, this is where uh, logical thought was formalized. Um, it's the birthplace of democracy. Uh, it's it's a fabulous feeling for 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 someone like myself that it's the only thing that makes sense to me is the logical life and and the logical argument and the logical criticism and uh, you know it, all of that. It, it's so that that that's magical. And then as I said, the, the, the just. The Greek people and 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 the food and and everything is is just fabulous to me. Uh, Costa Rica is uh, quite similar in the uh, soulfulness of the people and uh, the love of food and and the, the simple things and um, uh, well, of course, uh, Costa Rica the to just just to walk on a deserted beach and. Uh, you know, my colleagues down there are always, we just have such fabulous good times, but they're, they're not sophisticated in any way. Anyway, th- those are two uh, places I love to travel to. And uh, I, I, I did, I, so are, are you Colombian? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, uh, I have not been to Colombia, but interestingly, we get Colombians coming to Costa Rican course, and they keep saying, "Oh, you must come to Colombia." But you, uh, you, you gotta never... go, man. The people are are. I mean, I haven't been since I was a, like a kid, basically. But it, the Miami has such a, a large Colombian culture. That was Spanish was my first language. So the World Cup is coming up. So I'm obviously the most stressful person in the world. But 
uh, you, you'll love it down there. If you're just the Hispanic culture, there's a lot of Colombians in Costa Rica. I've, actually, my brother owns land owns land down there and goes there all the time. And I think you'll absolutely love that. What we call chispa, it's like a spark of our people. It's very happy and always, you know, parties and life and food. And yeah, you'll love it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, well, there you go. Just in case, I mean, I'll meet you down there. Forget about it. <laughs> some of my grandma's cooking, but um, well, we we've started a uh, back pain retreat in Santa Teresa, Costa Rica. So it's with my uh, colleague, who's a physician and surgeon there, uh, Doctor Baronetia. So uh, we're going to be running that for the first time, uh, it looks like, in January. So what you're saying is uh, you're inviting me. Basically, you guys heard it. Did you guys hear that? <laughs> oh, that, that was 100% an invite. Did you guys hear it? It was totally an invite. Uh, you got to bring your security dinosaurs. Absolutely. Yeah, I got I to gotta bring my security team, Stu, if you don't mind. These guys are twice my size. So, well, not one. He lost weight now, but whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Stu, so I want to kind of um, – ask one more thing and then I'm just going to kind of I thank you so much for giving us so much of your time I don't know if you're a night owl but I'm, I, I like to I get chatty at night with the whiskey and I'm having a great time so if it was up to me we'd probably talk about nonsense for the next two hours and hockey and sports and everything like that um, go penguins by the way so what I what I want to tell you and I want to I want to ask you uh, just a personal question and just what kind of advice and, I, and I, I'm going to say this to you. I know that it's very individual, and I know that it's you, you, you speak to the individual. If you were to give a person maybe three, three general movements that they should do or general tips, I, I, know, that, I know which ones I would choose. I'm, I wrote them down. I'm just hoping I'm kind of on the right track. But three general tips for, for, back, for just back health and back safety. But at the same time, I'm going to challenge you on this one that I think can relate to any general practice of well-being. And I know that when I read your book, and when I actually when I read your books, that there is an underlying message that I think transcends sport. I think Brian, in my opinion, was key to attaching your philosophy to strength sports and adapting it to 1020 and many other things. And Maybe I'm, I don't want to get too off topic, but if you were to say top three uh, ideas, philosophies, movements in general that you would give somebody to just progress in sport and back safety, if you can enlighten us on that. I know it's kind of a general question, but I really wanted to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to break it up into two uh, age groups, if I may, because I certainly can't talk to you know my my peers and group the same way I would talk to your peers and group it, it just doesn't make sense so let me break it up into here here's a group of young guys who want to retire with good joints uh, and um, just just good overall uh, health and and have the ability to do what they want to do so my advice there would be uh, don't do too much of any one thing. Uh, it, it, the stronger you get when you're younger, the less strength you'll probably have when you're older. Uh, the, the more you peak your athleticism, the more you use it up. So be a little bit modest in that. So 
well, I, I won't give any specifics other than that. Keep your core strong, move well, uh, do strength training in patterns, which just happens to be strong men, push, pull, <laughs> lift, carry, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and and but be careful of your adaptations. And what I mean by that is if you want to be a yoga master and a salsa dancer from Colombia and all of those great things, <laughs> fabulous, do that, but don't get too strong because the, the discs of your spine, you can adapt them to be very uh, pliable, um, but you reduce their ability to bear heavy loads. Conversely, if you... Um, bear heavy loads don't do a lot of spine motion. So choose which way you want to adapt your spine. So there's a, a few thoughts for um, younger people. For people now who they're retired and they, they want to keep their pain-free abilities for as long as possible, I'm going to steal this uh, from two older people who told me basically the same thing. They're both very successful uh, living people in terms of they don't have much pain, they're strong, they're able, they can recover from a fall, uh, they still have lots of fun, uh, etc. And their common wisdom goes like this. Get up early every morning and do your chores. Then... Uh, do something uh, in in a in a dedicated training session, two days a week strength train. Two days a week, work on the things that are getting a bit stuck. So those are your mobility days, but nothing extreme. Uh, the other two days in the week, do something completely different. Go for a swim, a longer walk, a ski. What, what, whatever that that something completely different should be and one day a week be sure to rest um eat well but eat half uh i think that is uh a, a little bit well if you're colombian my, my parents are <laughs> irish and uh, my dad always said, he said, uh, but a little bit of what tickles your fancy is good for you. So if you like a little bit of whiskey, go ahead. If you like a little bit of something else, go ahead and enjoy it. But just a little bit. You just, you're a man after my own heart because as I'm pouring my final glass for the night, um, I don't, I'm glad you guys can't hear it literally because that's what's been happening. But I'm gonna, you, I don't know if you heard that one, but I, dude. I'm going to ask you one more thing because you just you asked you brought up something that I get asked all the fuck all the freaking time but all the fucking time about this and honestly I wanted your insight I I kind of understand but I want people to hear it as well um and I guess it's all the time yoga and I know that you recently posted about a yoga instructor that you're very uh, impressed with and that you support fully and people seem to have this kind of idea that you're anti-yoga or we're anti-yoga but I, I honestly have always told them that it's like you said it's about adaptation can you give us a little insight just real quick about when and why and how yoga is involved with the spine and then in general for sports okay I do see a lot of patients that are patients because of yoga. So 
there. Uh, uh, let me establish a scientific principle here. Take a thin willow branch. You can bend it back and forth and it doesn't create any stress. If you take a thicker branch and bend it the same amount, uh, it'll shatter. And the reason is stress from bending is a function of its thickness or radial distance. So there are certain types of bodies that do quite well with a general yoga program. They're flexible. Now, they're not very strong. Uh, I've uh, worked with and, and rehabilitated some uh, very high-level yogis. I mean, these are people who are on the TV as, as yogis and, and yoga experts. Um, they are incredibly flexible, but uh, they would have difficulty squatting much load. So they've got an adaption to their body, and they've, they, they matched that type of training with their slender skeleton. Would I do that with an offensive tackle in the NFL? No, we'd, in, we'd be in big trouble very quickly because of the size of the joints. So it has to be an it-depends kind of question. What's your body type, and what is your eventual goal? The real yoga masters try and get the stress out of their body so that they can transcend their mind. It has nothing to do with health, but the Americanization of it, it is now turned into this health fad. Well, um, I've, I've got a little bit of a, a, a scientific uh, problem with that. But anyway, there you go. If, if, if uh, Now, I know the yoga teacher who you were thinking of, she doesn't give the same exercise to every uh, client in her yoga class. She asks questions and she does little tests. Some of the tests I've shown her. Um, you might ask a question, does this hurt you? Good. If this hurts you, you guys go sit on that side of the room. Now you're going to do this particular asana or pose or whatever you're going to call it. But on this side of the room, you guys will thrive on it. So you can do this form of it. And then she keeps uh, going into these breakout sessions with subcategories. That is a very wise yoga instructor. Anyway, may maybe I'll just stop there. But uh. <laughs> no, and I, I that's that's exactly what I wanted to hear. It's I feel like if you are just like a strength coach and just like anybody who is helping change, grow, manipulate the body, there should be an individual case-to-case -case scenario is just like figuring out somebody's squat. I know you're also a very big, um, ex good expert on the hips as well and just where the hips fall into place, whether they're shallow or narrow, uh, completely dictates the squat. Just like when you talked to me uh, and you identified that my strength was my glutes, you'd said, you said it without me even telling you that my strength were loading, moving, and the yoke. I said, absolutely, those are my best movements where coming out of the hole in the squat, I mean, you might as well bury me. That's why I love Strongman so much because of the movement events. Um, so that's that's exactly what I wanted to hear, and I kind of copying kind of the notes and, and things that I've been taking down. So, And again, to reiterate the fact of there's a lot of scientific study and, and general facts and understanding that you've, you're, you're talking about here, so it's not something that's just opinionated. Stu, I'm going to ask you, my favorite question that I like to ask a lot of people that I look up to, and it's a silly question, and it was not in the list that I gave you, but I think you might enjoy this. Um, you're stuck on a stranded island, okay? You're, you're done. That's it. Just you and Wilson, like the movie with Tom Hanks. 
you get one musical album and one food. Because I, I, I mean, I'm not gonna ask for a barbell movement here. You get one mu- one music album, one album, and one food until they find you. What would you pick? Greek food and Vivaldi Four Seasons. Gosh, why are you so so educated, man? After I'm crushing right now, I'm dying. Stu, that was a great answer. Vivaldi's. <laughs> I'm gonna be like, oh, he's like my favorite. Uh, I love Vivaldi, by the way. Um, Stu, thank you so much for everything you've done. I think that. Okay, <laughs> you want to hear a funny story? Yes, yep. I mean, I honestly. That movie uh, Castaway was shot on a little island in Fiji, offshore. Really? My I, my daughter, who you know, my daughter Sarah, and I, uh, I was lecturing in um, uh, New Zealand. I had to go and teach at uh, a university there. But as soon as we got there, I had to start teaching. So I said to Sarah, let's go to Fiji for four days and we'll get on the same time zone. And then we'll just fly south and I'll, I'll start teaching. So uh, we went to Fiji and we went to this hotel and it was awful. The coral was dead. There was, it, you know, I, I could, couldn't, with all the American tourists and everything, I thought I might as well have been in San Diego. So <laughs> I said to one of the uh, native women, um, do you know of any uh, places we could go where we could experience real Fiji? because I feel as though I'm in the Holiday Inn here. And she said, I think I know what you mean. Let me call my sister. Her sister uh, worked in a village, um, a traditional village. Uh, Anyway, we ended up taking a a catamaran out to this island and traditional village. Um, One of the chief's grandsons ran through the village one night screaming and, you know, kicking up a fuss. The chief grounded him for a year, and to his great embarrassment, he said, you stay in the village with the women and cook. The men can go and and do their thing. So when we got to this village, the 15-year-old boy was assigned to us, Sarah and I. It was on the island that that castaway movie was shot barefoot. He took us up the side of the mountain and we came out to that outcropping where, uh, you know, Tom Hanks was going to jump off the cliff with Wilson. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, we were there and then we, we were looking at all the bats flying the fruit bats overhead. And then we took, uh, walked down the mountain and this 15 year old boy says to me, he said, uh, sir, soften your knees as you're walking down the hill and you'll find it so much easier. So here's a, a 15 year old native kid telling a, a professor of biomechanics how to walk. And he was absolutely right. And then there was a, a pig in a, a pig pit that had fallen into the pit that he was going to bring home for for supper for the village anyway anyway that, that, that's my little story of uh castaway and, and that island but uh oh, that's yeah that's that's actually a great movie that's that's a great story too yeah um those islands there like that's actually going to new zealand is one of my uh one of my bucket lists because i love rugby that's why when you were telling stories about hockey and how the host team has to host the guest team for beers, that's yeah. a rug that's a rugby thing too. So you Very basically Yeah. You beat each other up and then you, you sit down and just have beers and talk about how some dude punched you in the face for eighty minutes. Um Stu, I'm not gonna keep you any further. I think okay. that I talked too I think, much, I'm sorry. No, what? No, I mean honestly, you, I'm 
I'm already getting kind of whiskeyed up, so honestly, I'll keep you here for another three hours. Stu, thank you so much. Honestly, I think that I'm just very grateful for you taking time. Um, and I wanted to – I'm going to say this. This is not the whiskey talking, I promise. This is just something I had planned out uh, yesterday in the shower because that's normally when I do most of my speech practice. <laughs> uh, I wanted to thank you not only for just the general involvement and – dedication you've given to this craft that has helped so many people come back from uh, quote-unquote career-ending injuries, but also for helping and influence Brian, which in turn helped me completely 100% change my life, my coaching, my personality, coming back from a very, very, very dark place and having somebody with a perspective of respecting the sport, respecting the athlete and psychology behind it, but also giving us that hope that there is, you know, there's life after injury and that you can continue to become so much better. So it was a pleasure to meet you and Jupiter. And I know that I'm going to be seeing you more often. Um, just this uh, silly bicep tear, but my spine is feeling awesome. So credit to you uh, for some of the listeners listening right now. I am a hundred percent pain free. My quality of life is great i can go to concerts i can walk i can sit i can move i can lift and i am a hundred percent a pain-free minor discomforts but i think that's because i'm 244 pounds and kind of fat not really and 33 (laughs) um but i wanted to thank you for that i wanted to thank you for taking time off i know you're a busy man and you're a professional but uh sitting down with a small podcast and uh, a gym with a lot of hope and a lot of ambition i want to thank Brian Carroll and Power Rack Strength and Team PRS. I can't thank that man enough and that team enough for making this happen and being so giving and professional with us. My boys, Beard Strong Podcast, for actually doing the editing and all the technology stuff that I absolutely suck at. Um, the Battle Axe and everybody there. Stu, if you want to mention anybody or anywhere we can reach you at, um, please tell us. Uh, Michael, thanks for everything that you do in your leadership uh, at Battleaxe. And JT and John, thanks for helping uh, pull all of this off. But uh, no, that's uh, that's it. But you know, Brian knows what I think of him, uh, and uh, so does everyone else who uh, has uh, helped me along the way as well. So thank you both, all three of you. Sorry. Uh, thank you. And I, I'm pretty sure, like, if people were listening, I guess you can come to the conclusion that after Brian, I pretty much have the most handsome bird dog <laughs> uh, ever seen. I think we can come to that since I was invited to Costa Rica. So, um, <laughs> can't take it back. <laughs> can't take it back now, Stu. Um, thank you so much. Again, guys, this is the Battle Action Podcast. Thank you for hanging out with us. And, like, I always end, don't be a pussy because everything ends. <laughs>